Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the CAAV podcast. Joining me once again is Jeremy Moody, Secretary and Advisor to the CAAV. Welcome back, Jeremy. Now, the last time we recorded uh, an episode together was back on the 9th of February, and a lot has happened since then. Oh, indeed. Uh, Somebody once said that there are decades when nothing happens and weeks when decades happen. And we have exactly seen that with the last month. Indeed, we're recording this on the first month anniversary of the war in Ukraine. And that has just changed so much in the world and what we understand and the markets we live in and the prospects that we we have moved from that time on the 9th of February through to an entirely new, much more uncertain, much darker world, and one which very much plays through in food and energy markets in ways that we'll talk through. And of course, there's a devastating humanitarian aspect to all of this. And clearly, it's a very difficult time for a lot of families, a lot of people in Ukraine, a lot of farmers in Ukraine. And, you know, our thoughts are certainly with them. But the market effects of this conflict and the ripples are going far and wide. Uh, We have an exodus of millions of people. We have cities that are destroyed. We haven't seen this in Europe since the end of the Second World War. Uh, The human cost, the farming cost, uh, the social cost, the impact on surrounding countries, and how long and how much it will take to rebuild Ukraine, and indeed, correspondingly, some level of damage from from deaths, uh, from economic disruption uh, within Russia itself. Uh, This is an enormously damaging uh, event with great human cost. And then we'll have as we may pick up later on, very considerable ripples further abroad over the coming months. And trying to make sense of of everything that's happening is very difficult, and it's clearly there's things changing on a daily basis, Jeremy. But we've already started to feel some of the impacts from this devastating conflict. Where, Where do you want to start in trying to unpick the impact we're facing now and potentially the impacts we're going to face in the coming months and potentially years? I think the best way to try and unpick it, put a structure on what's happened, is to understand that as of the 24th of February, the Black Sea was closed. And the Black Sea is the ports by which Ukraine exports the commodities that it produces, and particularly for this conversation, grain, oil seeds, maize, other agricultural commodities, and and, and the other commodities generally. It is also being the object of Russian foreign policy for 250 years that it needs warm water ports. So in the late 18th century, it was very anxious to capture this area from uh, the, the Crimea was an Ottoman Turkish land. They were very keen to capture it so that it had warm water ports that didn't freeze in the winter. And of course, most of its agricultural production tends to be in southern Russia, and again, this becomes the natural exporting route for it, out through the Bosphorus and onto the world. And that's now closed. And that has an effect across this harvest, the last harvest year, the harvest coming, and and quite probably the harvest beyond that. Because shipping in the Black Sea is now, if possible, extraordinarily expensive, 
You're unlikely to find seamen who want to do it. You're very unlikely to find an insurer who want to insure a ship doing it. There are 160 carriers, I gather, already just stuck in the Black Sea and adding to other pressures on world supply chains because they've been taken out of action as well. Of the grain that's internationally traded, 30% comes from Russia and Ukraine through the Black Sea. 80% of sunflower seed oil, one of the major vegetable oils for, for cooking and other, and other purposes, again, comes through from Ukraine and Russia. That is now cut off. We are doing that three quarters of the way through the 2021 harvest disposal year at a point where the forecasts are that we have very low carryover stocks for June going into the next Northern Hemisphere harvest. So on already tight stocks, we have now simply removed from the table all those exports and the very considerable stocks of grain and maize and oilseed that are stored in Ukraine and probably in Southern Russia uh, because they can't move. So we have dramatically tightened the market. That has had an immediate effect. So we've seen feed wheat go to 300 pounds a tonne. We have seen rapeseed priced in the Paris markets at 740, moving towards 800 pounds a tonne. We have seen extraordinary prices in other commodities, um, from nickel to oil. Now, some of the early price phenomena there are the results of financial embarrassment. There are people with margins in financial markets to meet, we have people with contracts. They've already, they've already sold on what they were going to have from Ukraine and Russia, and those are now lost. So they've had to make, make shift. But we are now seeing the prices that emerge after that, and we see those prices for grains and oilseeds. We see Brent crude at 110 or so dollars a barrel. We see red diesel at 120 pence a litre, and so on. And so that sees us through till we get the Northern Hemisphere harvest through. We then have what that harvest produces. And that's very largely now out of our hands. We can take care of the crops we've got. We have Brazil from the Southern Hemisphere already depressed by by drought. We have a number of issues that might limit Northern Hemisphere harvests, but we're looking at tight harvests probably and tight markets as we go into uh, the autumn of 2022. And still, I think, unlikely to see much Black Sea product coming through into that. The war may very well still continue. Many ports will be wrecked, railway lines will be wrecked, bridges will be wrecked. Ukraine hopes to plant towards 70% of what it would ordinarily do, but that has got to get through to harvest. They've got any way to have the inputs for that. Russia will again be disrupted by the very high cost of credit now after financial sanctions, issues over machinery parts, and again, the fundamental problem of if the Black Sea is still closed, enormous difficulties in moving anything. So we're looking at tight markets, and the forward market for wheat in November has been rising 240 pounds, 250 pounds, when I last looked, 260 pounds a tonne for November, showing markets looking ahead at that tightness coming through. And of course, then we have the consequences, and this is more an issue of inputs, perhaps at this point, of how we're going to be establishing arable crops this autumn and shaping what will be the 2023 harvest. These effects are large and long running. And it's interesting to reflect on, clearly there's going to be uh, an impact on the yield from the the Ukrainian and Russian harvest. uh, And 
in addition to that, the challenges in transporting that commodity and exporting it through the Black Sea is going to be very, very challenging. A lot of that grain would end up in the Middle East, which does, if, if impacted in the way you've explained, it might lead to some political uh, unrest in that part of the world. I think this is one of the very obvious places to go looking for consequences from this before we look at ourselves. A number of Middle Eastern markets draw their grain and their oilseed very heavily from Ukraine and Russia. And we have precedent for this. In 2010, with the second great wheat price spike, Russia had export bans, wheat got very dear. These are countries with very large poor populations where the governments subsidize bread, and that was going to become too expensive for them to do. So they eased back on the subsidies. Wheat got dearer. And we saw social riot and revolution that became the Arab Spring. We saw the Egyptian government fall. We saw the Tunisian government fall. We saw the revolution and chaos in Libya. And we have the continuing civil war. Ukraine provides 90% of Lebanon's wheat, and Lebanon is already in an economic catastrophe and is rationing grain now. The Egyptian pound devalued by 12% on Monday. A large slab of Ukrainian wheat goes into Yemen, which is again a civil war and economic catastrophe. We see Ukraine as being the source of 50% of the World Food Programme, the humanitarian World Food Programme's wheat, that might now have to feed Ukrainians. Uh, and so that has consequences across much of Africa. Uh, those, mark, those supplies go to uh, everywhere from Morocco through to Indonesia. But the oil seed of, side of this comes through for cooking as well as food processing and so on. A lot of wheat comes from Russia and Ukraine into Turkey. And Turkey exports 5 million tons of flour into the Middle East. And again, therefore, that's a flow of food that is then... Um, prevented by these changes. So the prospect, not only of looking at governments across the world having to find radical answers to these problems, is joined by the prospects of people in those countries doing very radical things to their governments with the political and social disorder that follows from that. Uh, that is merely one of the consequences from the action in Ukraine. And if we turn our attention back home and consider the consequences on UK farmers, uh, much has been talked about in the press recently around the increases in uh, fuel prices, feed and fertiliser in particular. Um, what's your assessment on, on this impact? Well, I think this is where we need to see this as the third major crisis in two years. We had the initial shock of the pandemic and its particular disruption to world supply chains at that point, particularly all those supply chains that are rooted in, in China, but disrupting then world shipping, containers, and so on. That was then overlaid by a second and probably more important disruption of supply chains as economies came to recover, particularly and sustainedly the American economy, but also, uh, with more spasms, the Chinese economy. And that has already um, been a significant jolt to world markets. China has, wants to suck in uh, primary commodities and it wants to export. Its ports, though, are periodically closed because it's still shutting cities. Uh, Shenzhen, only the other day, 
uh, simply because they have a few cases of COVID. Its policy towards COVID is, is being very disruptive. It's got major issues over, over power supplies. And so if we look at that, Chinese policy has been to instruct its energy suppliers that they are, quote, at all costs, close quote, to secure energy supplies. So it has been a major buyer in world markets for gas and for oil and for coal, protecting its own position, yet it still has fertilizer plants closed because it doesn't have the electricity for them. That has driven over last autumn significant increases in the price of gas particularly. That in turn, natural gas being the source feedstock for much nitrogen fertilizer, has driven the world fertilizer market in two directions, sharply increased prices, sharply reduced output. And we then watched that play through in the UK, but everything I'm about to say about the UK is true really of countries across the world. We saw prices rise, demand, particularly perhaps from livestock farmers, fell away thinking that prices would fall later. Slightly reduced demand, matched with higher input costs, drove companies like CF Fertilizers to shut down plants and reduce supply, creating for some the surprising effect of a loss of carbon dioxide production. And that led to the discussions in the autumn, which have been renewed this spring, by which one of CF Fertilizers plants has been reopened to meet that CO2 market, in effect producing fertilizer as a byproduct. We have tight fertilizer supplies across the world and very high prices. Ammonium nitrate was heading for £700 a tonne. People now, where they've been able to get supplies, though now much more shortened by the crisis in Ukraine, are now looking at £900 or £1,000 a tonne. But that's really the sort of price that tells you more about something not being available than what its price really is. And so we hear of merchants who have books open on odd days. They happen to have something. They can sell it at that if you're that desperate. But that drives then, particularly, I think, livestock farmers looking at pasture to think of other ways in which they might try and handle it. But we've got the same pressures coming through, not quite to the same extent, but in the oil market. But again, pressures over both cost and availability. And those pressures are exaggerated because of the way the refining market works and its costs. And again, strong world demand, much more exaggerated for diesel than, than for oil as a general product. Uh, and that's where we see the pressures coming through on one of the key costs and fundamental needs for actually conducting agricultural operations. Uh, we we saw the impact of agricultural inflation last year, uh, but commodity prices had increased and generally margins were maintained. The situation is very different this year. Yes, we're going to see some increases in some commodities, uh, but the increase in cost is so staggering, it's really going to eat into the margins. I think it, well, it depends on this where you are. Uh, one of the little um, features of the last few weeks have been the people who now are much keener to tell you how early they bought their fertiliser and how well they did. Uh, I think the costs are there for people looking to buy now and looking ahead to next year, for whom then, if prices don't respond correspondingly, will face some quite tight markets and, and, and restricted margins. Uh, there may be, for arable farmers, the prospect that prices of product for, 20, for the 22 harvest even will have outrun the cost of the inputs, many of which they already had. 
we wait obviously to see about availability of fuel for, for, for the actual operations involved. Uh, the pressure is probably greater now on some livestock farmers trying to work out how they manage uh, nutrients for their um, their operations. It's when we look into next year that I think these things perhaps become much sharper. And by next year, I mean this autumn's crop establishment and the decisions people will be making as they look at winter feed and moving on. And with regards to livestock farmers, Jeremy, um, what do you see them doing given all the increases in input costs? I think many of them face quite significant challenges with this. I see a number already bidding for more grass keep to take a larger area of less or unfertilised grass rather than expecting to fertilise the smaller area they might ordinarily have done. I've heard that clover seed is now significantly uh, more expensive as people are looking again for alternatives to try to fix nitrogen in the soil. Everybody, I think, will be looking much more carefully at nutrient management. This may be more powerful an influence on the very careful husbanding of slurries and manures on farms than anything government has been doing through nitrate vulnerable zones and all the other measures. This now is economically important in a way that it's not been before for farmers to manage their nutrients, to get the maximum value out of them, ensure they're applied in the closest and most careful way so as not to lose anything in these days when fertilizer is so costly. So what does all this mean insofar as food security? It is a, a debate that's been running particularly long through the development of agricultural policy post-Brexit. This current um, conflict and global situation, does this shine a new light on food security? Well, of course, food security is, is an interestingly elusive phrase. Uh, it comes to mean many things over time. Uh, there are countries that see it as meaning that they hold very large strategic stocks of food in the way that China or Switzerland do. There are big questions about whether it means the affordability of food, which might touch on some of the food inflation issues that, that the people are looking at. Uh, here, it seems to be more couched in terms of capacity to produce food. And the question is certainly being asked, and indeed DEFRA has been working on this. Uh, the Dimbleby Food Strategy Report of last summer was leading to a big food and land use white paper, which I think had largely been written until the, just before the Russian invasion, and then uh, is now being rewritten at this point. So we wait to see what they will say. But the scale of DEFRA's ambitions at the moment, if effective on land use change, are still very significantly less than anything in that we saw with Set Aside uh, a generation ago. So uh, that's not really, I think, the issue. The immediate issue is over how we are in inputs, because you can have all the land you like if you, and if you haven't got the inputs actually to deliver a successful uh, farming enterprise. The, if we really are looking at food security, though, that comes back to the productivity challenge. It comes back to having the best people with the best management doing the most appropriate farming in the most profitable way that gives you a secure, confident base to deliver food for this country. And at the moment, we do deliver for many of the major uh, crops and livestock enterprises that we have in this country. We do deliver very, very near, near or full food security in quite a number of them. So I think it comes back to the food security question not being a question about uh, can we just dip out of all the policy change, but 
can we really deliver the good businesses that give the country, the government, the people confidence that farming can stand to the plate to deliver in these much more challenging circumstances? And those, of course, include the ones that come around climate change and, and, and allied environmental risks, that the risk policies, the risk assessments for the future that, that we've seen show climate change as one of the medium and longer term risks to farming and food production. And that means that the outstanding climate change still to come that's baked into the system now is something we have to be very prepared for, both in terms of mitigating it and in terms of adapting to it. So all this is wrapped up in something that just makes all the pressures on farming, on rural land management over this decade and beyond much more intense. There isn't a simple either or in this. I'm afraid it's just more. But the issue is not only the spiralling cost of inputs, it's the availability of inputs as well and some concern around the availability and potential scarcity of red diesel going forward. I think this 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 is quite real at the moment. Uh, I've heard uh, a couple of contractors talking about having ordered 4,000 litres and only being given 1,000 uh, when the merchant was open. And that question of availability is something that's quite hard to foresee over the coming months. We are looking increasingly at the prospect of energy sanctions on Russia. We take overall very little in the UK directly from Russia, about 3% or so of our gas, but 13% of our diesel comes from Russia. So that's a bit more disruptive. We live, though, in a market that is global for these commodities. The shock in Northern Europe, in Germany particularly, of any shortening of supply from Russia, whether of gas or of oil, will have effects across Europe and across the world. Uh, Major international discussions have been going on about how Europe might be supplied with energy were were Russia cut off. Uh, from it. And that's something which could shorten all our markets. At the moment, the government is confident we have enough diesel in the country. So there may be particular issues in how it's allocated within the supply chain. But it remains a very significant caution. You can have all the harvest you like. But if you can't power the combine, it's not a lot of use. And with the um, focus on uh, trying to deal with the energy crisis. Will the government, and and do you foresee there'll be a a renewed focus on developing renewable energy projects? Will that become um, something that's going to be driven forward at a much quicker pace now? I think emphatically so, and we're expecting a statement from the government next week uh, on energy policy that's likely to dwell on these areas, uh, probably very much only a first reaction to the, uh, the current crisis. Uh, In the very short term, we're actually turning our back on a number of climate change goals. By We've been using more coal in this country for power since last summer. We will use more gas. uh, But I think we will see the government then coming out of this, wanting to emphasise renewable energy very much more. In England, talk of permitted development rights for smaller scale solar development and planning guidance favouring larger scale development a battle at the moment over policy towards onshore wind in England, Scotland already declaring for more onshore wind, Uh, the policy towards uh, further development of nuclear as the baseload for all of this. Very clearly, I think we're going to see that coming through, and that at some level is a challenge for land use. But that's a medium-term answer. It doesn't solve this year. It It may help perhaps next year, but years thereafter. 
the challenge in that that we face is we can do the investment, we can generate the renewable energy, it's getting it into the system and getting it into people. The national grid is at the moment the bottleneck. Uh, There are renewable energy developments that have been told that they can't be connected to the grid until 2027 or 2030 or beyond. And any serious energy policy that we have must address the limitations on the national grid, free it up to do the necessary investment so that we can meet these challenges. And all this fits in with the climate change goals that we have to meet anyway. Uh, And also looking at the distribution cables that will take the power from the grid to the villages, to the towns, to the farms, needing it for heat, for transport, for power. Uh, All this is simply taking the challenges we knew we had and putting them on steroids. With regards to the wider economy, what's your assessment on the fallout of all this on on the economy? The immediate fallout, and of course, we've seen the Chancellor's spring statement yesterday, the immediate fallout is that the economy is not going to grow as much as was hoped uh, by world disruption, by increased costs from uh, oil and fertiliser, indeed, and other, other inputs. It also leads to calls for more public expenditure, in addition to the ones that are already being demanded. We are now having to look much more seriously at what is a proper defence posture in today's world. And these all come back to the need as an agriculture, but across the whole economy, for us to tackle our productivity problem. And that is where the Chancellor yesterday did say some interesting things and following up previous thoughts of his about how we actually use the tax system to best encourage private business investment how we use it to encourage research and development and innovation, and how we use it to encourage skills. And he's opened up a very open conversation on what are the policies, what are the capital allowances, what are the other tools that really encourage this so that we genuinely grow a better economy that maintains better living standards and pays for the public services, whether health or defence, that we need. And so we are now more challenged but perhaps by being more challenged, we may rise better to the plate. And if we were to consider for a moment uh, some of the impacts of this on professional work of the valuers listening to this podcast, you've spent some time looking at potentially which areas of professional work might be most effective and which areas valuers will need to consider carefully when, when doing their their work and, and providing advice. What's, what's your assessment on the things valuers will need to focus on and bear in mind uh, going going into the next few months? Well, I think we have some immediate issues that come through simply because of the shock in the change of values. We have uh, many members who will be doing stock takings on arable farms this uh, 31st March. And at that point, they will be looking at the costs of operations as part of the stock taking. And Autumn operations may well be at one cost and spring operations may very well be at another cost to be picked up, to be put into the tax accounts. Deemed costs, when we come to look at the value of crops in store, will be very much increased by what we have seen. Uh, Obviously, so too will be the stores of fertiliser and a number of other consumables, uh, all that to be taken into account. When we come to look at tenancies ending 
this uh, Lady Day, or indeed for in the Northeast in May, uh, we will be looking then at the compensation due to the tenant for acts of husbandry as being at their value to an incoming tenant at that time. And so the value of the operations, the value of the crop, uh, all will need to be taken account of at that point. That will see some people receiving uh, or able to claim significant amounts of money, but that's a corresponding cost for the landowner or the next ingoer into that uh, to be borne in mind. So some, some, some issues to think about there. Those operate on a relatively standard basis. I think we have a lot more thinking to do where we look at the general spread of joint ventures, uh, particularly perhaps in contract farming, but also the various forms of share farming around and so on. Anything where cost and risk uh, uh, and, and reward are split between people uh, and, and shared in some kind of joint venture is going to need some thinking about. You will have contractors who will be facing rising red diesel costs. And how is that reflected in a pragmatic and sensible way between them and the instructing farmer? How are we going to look at how all this affects the first charge in a contracting agreement and the costs of operations and how we look at the divisible surplus? What is the right split of gross output in a share farming agreement? And underneath it all, and whether we're talking about landlord-tenant or contracting arrangements or other agreements between farmers and, and, and landowners, this is going to test some relationships. And we'll really understand how good the quality of a relationship is by how pragmatic and sensible people can be when current economics start providing some answers that could be seen by one as advantageous to them and by the other as very disadvantageous. How do you keep a good relationship going on a commercial basis between those two people? We have a number of issues coming through about how we look at building projects. The disruption of the supply chain I talked about earlier has already seen timber more than double in price and now eased back a bit. Structural steel nearly doubled in price and on a plateau. But since the new year, we have seen, I think, increases coming through, and, and, and I suspect will come through more strongly, in what I would call the high energy input uh, elements of building. And by that, I mean cement, I mean bricks, I mean tiles, I mean sanitary wear. Everything is a distinctively high energy cost in their manufacture. And that's where the extra increase in energy costs from the last few weeks comes through. But it's also because many businesses hedging arrangements or forward or contracts for energy have expired and they're now facing much sharper, much more hostile conditions in energy markets to continue their trade. The brick industry says that it's been approached by government to say, if we had a gas shortage, would you slow down production? And those are, again, issues to look at in the future. So building costs rise, and that affects projects. Some will not go forward. Some will be deferred. Some will be continued at these costs. But that, again, comes back into end of tenancy and the assessment of where you might be on tenants' improvements or tenants' fixtures, again, part of that end of tenancy assessment. So there's a lot going on to think about in terms of those arrangements and calculations. There is a final warning for some people, though, to pick up in this. We have now sanctioned a very large and growing range of Russian individuals and Russian entities, both oligarchs and businesses. There are clearly Russians who fled here years and years ago to escape Vladimir Putin. And there are people here who have been very closely aligned 
with his operations and policies. Where you have people who are subject to sanctions, or indeed could be subject to sanctions, then very considerable care and caution needs to be taken in looking at any action involving the property. Much of it, of course, we think in central London, but there will be rural property here. Care and caution will be needed in understanding any action involving that property. We have the now the Economic Crime Transparency uh, um, Act, now on the statute book as a, as a swift response to the war. Uh, we have anti-money laundering legislation. We have economic crime legislation. And all those come with very considerable penalties. And while it may be that some of them have been able to move their financial assets abroad, property remains here, but could be held through very complex and opaque structures, making it difficult to know quite who really owns what. And that points to very considerable caution. Some of those properties will still need managing. But the government has also talked of taking them, taking control of them uh, under its own command at some point with legislation later this year. And that, as I said, calls for acute awareness of what's involved in all of that, uh, I said, between the management of property, but being very, very careful about anything that looks like a disposal. And it's impossible to know how long this conflict will last, Jeremy. But however long it does, its impact will have will be felt over many, many years. This, uh, as, as you mentioned to me previously in a separate conversation, it will have multi-year effects. Oh, I think clearly so. I, at, at a geostrategic level, this has completely rewritten people's assumptions about where we are in terms of levels of risk in the world. It's building on the changes in the supply chain where people are already pulling back from having so many eggs in the Chinese basket. Uh, you're looking at a world now more divided, uh, West, particularly against Russia, but other countries that have uh, and are more tolerant of Russia than we are in this, the people are abstaining in the United Nations votes. We are, uh, and that redraws supply chains, the consequences of the sanctions, and of course there, we are excluding um, Russian supplies of fertilizers, of, of, of phosphate and, and so on coming through from that and from Belarus. Uh, we are dividing a previously globalized world. We then talked already about the potential consequences of, in the Middle East and Africa and elsewhere. And the Syrian civil war is still continuing 12 years later from the last time this was, this was launched. We are talking then about uh, much more concern about how we deal with matters here uh, and dealing with these things in the agricultural and, and other worlds. This, this is one of those epoch-changing events with political, strategic, military, agricultural, social, economic effects of a sort we haven't contemplated in an adverse way since the Second World War. Well, Jeremy Moody, once again, thank you ever so much for providing a comprehensive analysis of what we currently know about the market effects of this uh, devastating Russian war on Ukraine. Hopefully, and this podcast has been very much enlightening to our loyal listeners. And thank you very much to everybody who's tuned in. And thank you once again uh, to Jeremy Moody. 
And there we are. We've reached the end of yet another episode of the CAAV podcast. If you want to keep up to date with all future episodes or indeed catch up on previous ones, please head to our website or you can subscribe for free on whichever platform you use. Also, if you've got any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch by sending us an email to inquire at caav.org.uk. But that's it for today. Until the next time, thank you very much for listening and bye for now.